0: Welcome to LiveWire. How's it going? I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. Uh, We have an awesome show in store for you. Once again, we are partnering with Wordstock, which is a Portland book festival. And we figured that the theme of cautionary tales would make sense, since we're having a very literary week on the show. Uh, Of course, because my brain is my brain... When I heard cautionary tales, I started to think of a cautionary tale about my dog's actual tail. Which I know is sort of a weird way to start the show, but just take a listen. We have a dog, my wife and I. Uh, She's a yellow lab. Her name is Rudy. She's four years old. She's great. But she is an irrationally happy animal. Even when she shouldn't be happy, this dog is extremely pumped to be anywhere. Which would be fine, except her excitement manifests itself through the aggressive wagging of her tail. And it is a problem in our household because it's, it's like her tail... It's like the U.S. military weaponized an appendage to create maximum damage to anything that is on a coffee table. And when we got the dog, we had already bought most of our furniture, and we didn't know like, exactly how big she was going to get, but it turned out that she was going to get to be the exactly wrong height for living in our house. And we are at a point where if we want to stay there, we need to get a shorter dog or taller furniture <laughs> because it's, it's catastrophic what she does as she roams the house just knocking things down. And it's her excitement for life, her enthusiasm, is also problematic when we have people come over, when we have visitors, because she gets all amped and she wants to greet them and when i say greet them i mean she wants to bury her nose in their nether regions which there's no non awkward way to handle that situation on either side of it like let me take your coat how is traffic have you showered your crotch lately cuz the dog is picking up a really strong situation so the The strategy that my wife and I now employ when we have people coming over to try to keep the dog out of their business is we get the dog a treat that she loves so much that she will disappear for like an hour or two just gnawing on this treat. And the treat she loves the most in the world, upsetting as this is to say, is a kneecap. So she loves to gnaw on these things, and we had friends coming over last weekend, and so we had the kneecap in place. And our friends pull up, and we're like, deploy the kneecap. (laughs) So we give her the kneecap. She runs off. Our friends come inside, and we're, like, pouring them some wine and stuff and chatting. And, like, two minutes have passed, and the dog comes trotting back into the living room where we are. And her tail's wagging, and she has a big smile on her face. My wife is like, where's the kneecap? (laughs) And in the course of about two minutes, she has whittled the kneecap into like a baseball sized perfect sphere that is now lodged in her airway. Aww. Yeah. Like, not 100%, but probably 80 or 90% blockage. The insane thing is the dog did not come into the living room to say, I'm dying in two minutes. She came into the living room to be like, is anything fun happening? So... We're all starting to freak out a little bit. My wife is panicking. I'm starting to panic. Our friends are like, we did not sign up to watch a dog die. <laughs> we were just coming over for wine. And so you always wonder what you're going to do in that moment. Are you going to like rise to the challenge or are you going to kind of fall apart? And I rose to the challenge by inventing something called the dog Heimlich, which was I picked the entire dog up. By the way, she weighs like 65 pounds. She's not small. And I start shaking her. And nothing's coming out. And the dog is looking at me with a huge grin on her face. I look back, her tail is still wagging. May the spirit of a yellow lab come upon all of us when we're at the end of our life, by the way. She could not have been more zen about this whole thing. And my wife goes, what are you doing? And I go, the dog Heimlich. And she goes, that's not a thing. And I go, I think you're right. So I put the dog down she's still just kind of wandering around and somebody yells I don't even remember who it was, it was probably one of our friends says you've got to reach in there and pull it out and I was not into that idea for one because I've seen what this dog eats when we turn her loose in the yard it's mostly cat poop and two because I was worried I, I didn't want to push it further down in there and make the situation even worse but it was at that moment where like something had to be done immediately so I reach in there And it's, I'm like 11 reaching into the upside down from Stranger Things, it's like wet and there's like snow is going in the wrong direction. It's very freaky. Thank you to the seven people who got that joke. Uh, You're gonna have a great time over the course of the next hour for the rest of you. Sorry, it's gonna be boring. I reach in and it's just like wet and weird and like I find the thing and I pull it out and I throw it on the floor. And like the dog just like takes in the biggest breath. like, And it's like almost for the first time she's realizing how close she was to not being alive. And she looks at me with this look of, like, you saved me. And that lasts for about a tenth of a second. And then she looks over at the kneecap and just goes right back to it and just eats it again. I guess the cautionary tale is that dogs are not very smart and that the dog Heimlich is remains not a real thing. So I wanted to just kind of clear that up at the beginning of the show. You guys want to get your first guest out here? Our first guest's debut novel, California, was a runaway hit. So much so that she once had to sign 10,000 copies of it over the span of just three days. Thanks to her surgically replaced robot arms, she was able to type her next book the novel Woman Number 17, which delves into questions about what it's like to be a parent, what it's like to be a child, and what it's like to find out your nanny is secretly a performance artist. Please welcome Eden Lepucky to (laughs) LiveWire. Eden, welcome to LiveWire.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you... uh, for those who haven't had a chance to read yet, can you kind of lay out the basic plot of your new book?
1: Sure. It's about two women. One is named Lady, and she is a estranged from her husband who has purchased her a house in the Hollywood Hills, and she now lives there with her two sons. Her son, Seth, is 18, and he doesn't speak and never has, and she has a two-and-a-half-year-old son as well named Devin, and she hires a nanny who goes by the name of S. Her name is actually Esther, and... Um, to watch Devin so that Lady can write her memoir. She's on contract to write a book about raising Seth, and it's supposed to be this triumphant mothering memoir about raising a child with a disability. So in comes S to watch Devin, and S and Lady immediately have this connection. And Lady is not aware, however, that S is a performance artist, and she has kind of a secret project going on.
0: I've heard you uh, tell someone that you had a kind of a different plot in mind for this book at one point, but that you you said you felt like the character wouldn't let you do that, or you couldn't have you couldn't make him do that. Yes,
1: the original idea was Seth, the who's um, he has selective mutism, or that's what he's uh, diagnosed with. It's mostly a social anxiety ailment. Um, so my idea was that he was going to run away, and they were going to have to find him. But he was such a fascinating character, and it was like page 120, and he still hadn't left. And I was like, all right, he's not going anywhere. Got to keep him in the book.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that was so interesting to me, this idea of your relationship as a writer with these characters. I mean, are, like, do they have autonomy of some kind once you start writing them in the book?
1: I don't want to get too woo-woo on you. But
0: this is public radio. Woo-woo yeah, it, is really... It, it, kind it's of, on the tote bag. That's sort of our sweet spot, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'll make the tote bag jokes, Lepucky.
1: So I, I'm not an outliner, um, which means I don't really plan... Too far ahead. I like that I don't know yet what's going to happen. I do know usually a couple scenes, and sometimes like a mirage, the final moment will be in the distance, Um, and I'm sort of writing towards that. So, but because I don't plan, things happen that surprise me, and that's what's really fun. So it's not as if there are these real people that are tugging me along, but there is some kind of possession that takes place where I'm deeply in the moment, and things are happening that I didn't intend to happen.
0: What is your writing? situation like where do you sit uh what kind of room are you in you have coffee like what's your whole process
1: well my my husband we just moved into a new house in LA and we built this office downstairs my husband and I share it there's a wall between us but like he, literally
0: or figuratively
1: literally oh, okay <laughs> right baby he's upstairs <laughs> um and um <laughs> so um and sometimes he's on his like calls and he just speaks in acronyms That's what business people do, you guys. They just speak in acronyms. They're like FYI, the PRI, the blah, blah. You know, it's like, what does that mean? So I sometimes, the business zone is like swamping into my artist zone. So now I just go, I've lately been going to a coffee shop and doing that thing.
0: So you sit at the coffee shop. And I get
1: a latte, whole milk, cow's milk, as nature intended. A latte (laughs) to be made.
0: Uh Them's fight, fighting words in Portland. I mean, you're a long way from LA, Lapuki.
1: I listen to music with words.
0: Um, what, what, like, do you have a special playlist or is it a, um, a Spotify I, station? I tend
1: to listen to the same albums over and over again. So for Woman Number 17, I wanted to get into a kind of what I was calling like a female snarl. So I listen to a lot of Kinney, actually.
0: Ah. Well, now you've won this crowd yeah. back. And after I, your hurtful soy latte comments. Wait, Eden, <laughs> we gotta take a quick break. Hold that thought, we have Eden Lepucky here. Her latest book is Woman Number 17. This is Live Wire from PRI. We're at Mississippi Studios in Portland, and we will be right back. Hey, have you ever thought about starting your own Live Wire? Um, well, you're gonna need some stuff if you wanna do that. You're gonna need uh, a theater, you're gonna need a house band, maybe you got friends that are good you know, with instruments or something. Uh, You gotta get a live audience there Um, You need microphones Like microphones are a huge part of what we do Week in and week out Um, I don't know where you're gonna get all of that stuff I would say just probably go on the internet And search for it Um, But the easy part about making your own live wire would be getting The chair and also The desk that I use When I am making the show Because we get those from Fully And you can go to Fully's website right now Or if you're in Portland you can stop in to their retail location and get yourself some amazing stuff that will help your productivity, it will help your health. Uh, Their website is Fully.com. They're a Portland company. They've been helping Livewire out for years and years. And they make the Jarvis sit-stand desk that I use when I'm doing the show. And they also sell the Capisco chair that I use uh, when I'm hosting the show. In fact, when I'm at my house recording stuff, as I am right now, I sit on a TikTok stool from Fully. All of this stuff is designed to keep you engaged, to keep you creative, to keep you productive, even when you're in a, uh, a sort of work environment. It's been great for me. It's been great for the Livewire staff. They redid our offices there in Portland. Uh, so if you want to find out more about what Fully does, head over to fully.com slash Livewire, and you're, like, one or two steps closer to having your own radio show. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRI. We're at Mississippi Studios in Portland this week. Our theme is Cautionary Tales. We're here as part of Wordstock. We've got Eden Lepucky here. Her latest book is uh, Woman Number 17. Uh, one of the main characters in this uh, book, Eden, is uh, the character S, is in a way kind of using art to hide her true self. Is that something that echoes your own life? Like, do you use the fact that you're a writer and that's kind of a thing you do and a thing that that you've been really lauded for as a way do you hide behind that ever like
1: well doctor um <laughs> i you know i live a really i think i live a pretty boring very happy stable life i you know i have two kids i like to go to bed at 9:45 baby like that feels good right but
0: that is by the way adult life right like when you are actively excited the earlier you can get in bed <laughs> yeah. Like, if you could get in bed at 6.30, you would be like, I yes. shot the moon today.
1: <laughs> but I, I really like to write about people who make bad decisions and bef- behave badly. And so I, I think there is a part of me that really enjoys entering that kind of almost dangerous space, but there not being any consequences in my real life.
0: So it's sort of vicarious Yeah, a in bit. a way. Um, your book, California, has a, an interesting story because... It became it got caught up in this odd moment in kind of literary history, which is uh, you Stephen Colbert talked about it, Sherman Alexei talked about it, and it was used as an example of of a book that people should uh, buy and read as part of this dispute with a publisher um, and the book became extremely popular, but you were kind of known as the person who got this this push from Stephen Colbert, and yet you worked really hard on this book. It was a really good book all on <laughs> its you. own. How, th- how do you feel about that, kind of being something that you're in a way known for?
1: In the long run, I really... I don't mind. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was such a... Str- I always say that was the strangest summer of my life, and I gave birth in the sum- one summer. Yeah. So you, it, that's a, giving birth is really deeply weird, but being on Colbert is also really weird. Um, so I was thrilled, obviously... To have that attention on the book and to for it to reach so many readers, there definitely was a part of me where I would felt like I had to prove, like I worked really hard on this book too. Um, but everybody works really hard on their books, books, and some books do really well, and some don't, and it doesn't necessarily connect to how good or good the book is. So, you know, I definitely had the like survivor's guilt <laughs> of like, why is my book doing so well and other people's aren't? Um, but I mostly try to enjoy myself because I have a like probably a lot of people, NPR listeners. I'm really good at making feeling bad about a good thing. Sure. <laughs> like snatching
0: ha- sadness from the jaws of happiness. Yes.
1: Like I ruined my wedding by just overthinking it all the time. So I was like, "This is my first book, and it's doing really well. I get to go on Colbert. Like I'm gonna enjoy this," and I did.
0: Did it create a certain sense of um, pressure or a different relationship with the with the writing of Woman Number Seventeen?
1: What happened was people were really worried about me, like strangers even. They'd be like, so you were really successful. Aren't you worried it won't happen again for you? I'd be like, I'm not worried, but you are. Um, I sort of was like, well, it happened once, and it's off my bucket list. And I had already started Woman Number 17. So I added like 150 pages when California came out. So Woman Number 17 was already alive, so to speak, was already a fictive world that I could return to when the hullabaloo of California was over. And... Honestly, I didn't really care because I just wanted to I didn't I wasn't really thinking about how well it would do because I was already writing it and just in the muck of writing it.
0: Yeah. Well it's a great book and congratulations. I Thank think you it really so turned much. out well. Eden Lepucky. the book is woman number seventeen. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who partners with farmers to help ensure no meat in-store has added hormones or antibiotics. Because the words mystery and meat don't need to apply to this week's lunch. Whole Foods Market. We believe in real food. Hey, it's Luke, reminding you that it's LiveWire's Fall Member Drive. This, of course, is the time of year when we ask you the live Wire listener to become you the live Wire member. That's right. We are a nonprofit organization and we are only able to exist because of things like our amazing members who help support the show financially. If you have listened to the program in the past year, and if you feel like it has added some value to your life, uh, we would humbly ask that you consider becoming a member and kicking us a couple of bucks every month. Um, Member support is truly how we are able to do this show. That's not hyperbole. That is not an exaggeration. That is the economic reality of Livewire and how it works. We can only do this because of your support. Um, And if you donate to Livewire during this fall drive, we are going to send you a pair of custom Livewire socks as a thank you. Plus, you get all kinds of other cool stuff when you become a member, and we have all of that information over at LivewireRadio.com. Dot org. That's where you go to help support the show. LiveWireRadio.org. And thank you again from the bottom of our hearts. We really would not be here, would not be able to do this without support from people like you. LiveWireRadio.org. This is LiveWire from PRI. Our theme this week is Cautionary Tales. We are coming to you from Mississippi Studios as part of the Wordstock Book Festival Our next guest is an award winning poet from St. Paul, Minnesota. They've been a finalist for the National Book Award and are a 2017 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow. They're here in Portland as part of the Wordstock Festival. Their latest book is Don't Call Us Dead. Please welcome Denez Smith to (laughs) Livewire. Danez, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I am doing really well. How are you liking Portland? I like Portland. (laughs) Um, When did you first start writing poetry?
2: Oh, um, on a cold winter day in ninth grade. Yeah. A teacher of mine, I totally... I was was a theater nerd back then, so a different kind of gay. Um, And... (laughs) Um, and she brought in, it was like a social justice theater class, and so we were writing our own plays, and she brought in uh, this like CD of like young people doing spoken word, and I was just like, what the crap is this? I thought it was so cool, and they were saying political things, it was not boring, and it was the first time I had ever heard a poet that wasn't dead, you know, because it was always Robert Frost or Langston Hughes if it was February. Um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> got, to, got to give them the shortest month, right? Got to, got to, got to. We do a lot with those 28 days, 29 sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I was just super amazed with it, and it was just sort of spitballed, and now, what, like 13 years later, I'm still writing poetry, and it feels weird. Yeah. What, was the, what was the early stuff that you were writing like? Oh, in everything um, that you would expect of like a 14-year-old child. Um, it was like a lot of like, I hate this member of my family this week. <laughs> um... There were some breakup poems. I thought I could like. I I wrote like a weird like infomercial poem one time where like I was like advocating for people to give like eighty six cents a day to what I don't know, but it felt important when I was like fifteen. Infomercial to write that. poetry. Infomercial
0: poetry. That 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 you could actually that could be something.
2: Yeah. If that my other career path was possibly writing uh the like sa- writing the words like sad dog commercials for the humane society. So. Oh man. Yeah. Those. Uh, oh oh come on. No y'all.
0: I. I'm with you. Like late at night. I'm watching TV and like I abs- I one hundred percent respect the mission of that organization and mm-hmm. I, I I support it and I think we all should. That being said, there are times when I cannot hear that Sarah McLaughlin
2: song. No. And they need to I, switch it up. If it was like Genie in a bottle by Christina Aguilera, you know, maybe like all oh, these dogs are funky, you know, I want to like support their comeback, right. you know, it's a little different, right. you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> what was your uh, you grew up in Saint Paul. What, yep. what was your childhood like there?
2: Uh, I loved my childhood in Saint Paul. I think Minnesota is the best place to be. Um, Prince once said that it's so cold it keeps the bad people out. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I, f- I felt like I had a really like rich, diverse uh, upbringing. Um, like I grew up in the black part of Saint Paul. Um, every school I went to was like a third black, a third white, a third um, Asian American or Hmong. Um, and that was it was super brilliant. I felt like I grew up knowing every kind of person, um, having a really dope world point. And maybe my opinion about Minnesota has. Changed a little bit since I became woke. Um, if you want to say, I hate that word. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, let's talk about that. What yeah. don't you like? <laughs> what don't you like about about the term woke? Well, because I think it doesn't take that much to wake up, and I think a lot of people are actually sleep deprived um, in their wokeness. <laughs> uh, you know, I <laughs> I don't know. I don't. What are you woke to? Like you, you feel right? like
0: people are people like to claim that they're. And for for those of you that aren't on the internet to be woke is to sort of be more aware of other people's experience Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm, life and Uh, particularly, people from underserved communities and, and and minority groups, et cetera. But you're saying it's too easy for people to declare themselves. To yeah, be woke? you know.
2: Have you ever met somebody who's like so far on the left that the right again? You know, <laughs> <laughs> they just made their way around the sphere. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think that's my like, interpretation. Like being a, like tad bit too woke. I think like being liberal is like a good thing to be because that typically means you want other people to live fully textured lives the way they want to, um, as opposed to conservative, which is like I would really like to live in the year you know, two. Um. <laughs> but yeah, so I think, yeah, I think just like wokeness. It becomes this performance of liberalism that I don't always buy into. I think that there is productive liberalism. I think that there is um, a great sense of like radicalness that we can have. But some folks, I like know a couple of it, a couple of folks that are a little bit like too woke for their own good. It's just like, maybe you need a nap. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It can be a challenge, particularly with the internet these days, mm-hmm. because I think, I mean, the idea, one of the ideas of, of being progressive and of liberalism is everybody to have a voice yeah.
2: and for everybody to weigh in on things. And I, yeah, think that's I hate a, that. <laughs> we don't all need a voice. Some of us need an ear. Uh, but <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> when the most recent set of allegations came down, I think it was... And by the way, you know, it's like you need some kind of a flip calendar to keep track of it of oh, late. But yeah. was, it was involving the comedian Louis C.K. And, and somebody, a woman wrote on Twitter right after this came out, she said, dudes, just take the rest of the day off. <laughs> like we And I, what I took from that was we don't need you weighing in on social media about how we should feel about this or not feel or whatever. And I mean, I think that's maybe a little bit of what you're talking about, about more ears more listening and less talking, yeah, particularly I, I, from I, like people like me.
2: Yes, exactly. For people like you, yes. Um, so this is my podcast now. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Um, welcome to Live Wire with your host, Deniz Smith. Um, <laughs> actually, you know what? <laughs> That's.
0: That's that's not even a joke because you you performed with Macklemore. I did, and in in essence, I was in his backup band. That, yeah. Well, that's a, a bit of what happened, right? This mm-hmm. was on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and he was Macklemore was performing this this song White Privilege Two, mm-hmm. follow up to his song White, White Privilege, Privilege One. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. White Privilege One left so many unanswered questions. So yeah. <laughs> we did definitely need a sequel. But what he did, he started perform he started the performance, but then he eventually moved off the stage. Mm-hmm. And you and Nikita Oliver. Yep. Who is that the same Nikita Oliver that almost became mayor of Seattle recently? Yes,
2: that is the same
0: almost yeah. mayor of Seattle, Nikita Oliver. So you were on stage performing and he had kind of moved off, and, and I felt like that was a-, a very obvious statement about who's holding the mic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did that come together? How did you feel about how that all went down?
2: Yeah, it came together. Um, so and when McLemore was writing, Um, the song. He wanted a poet to possibly feature on the track. Um, A friend of mine, um, Hollis Wong, uh, works as a collaborator of Macklemore, called me and was like, do you know a black woman poet who would be good for this? I recommended uh, Jamila Woods, who ended up being on the recorded version of the track. Jamila Woods is an awesome R&B artist and poet, if y'all don't know. Um, So she sings too. So she ended up singing on the track instead of doing a poem. Um, And then they were doing a live version, and there's a part on the recorded version where there's a lot of activists um, that, you know, just give little sound bites about uh, white privilege or about... um, about like sort of the Black Lives Matter movement at the time. Um, and they wanted to replicate that in a live way. And so I think Jamila just recommended me right back. They were trying to get some poets, and they was like, just get the um, So that was really cool. I got to meet Macklemore that day. He was like way better of a guy than I thought. I, I'll just be real. I'm black, and so I have opinions about things. Um, and I didn't, and yeah, I didn't really know how I felt about Macklemore, but like sitting behind, sitting behind stage at, a, at, a, at the Colbert show, I really got, like, got a chance to like, really sit down and talk to him. He's a super dope guy and like the best dude. Dude, he's actually really cute. Um, he has these tallest shoulders. Um, and yeah, so that was like a really, really cool experience. And I'm glad Macklemore, like he, he was thinking about that, about getting out of the way and like really letting that song do what it's supposed to do, which is like invite white people into a space of discomfort um, to be able to talk about white privilege, to talk about the ways in which whiteness actually disadvantages white people in the world as well. Um, and then to let some black folks get on the mic and say what needed to be said. So yeah, it was cool.
0: Uh, you use the pronoun they, them. At zoo, for for folks that are still trying to get woke on that particular topic, uh-huh. would, would would you would you mind it, it kind of explaining why why you made that choice, and for for other people that that use they, them, or other. Sort of non-traditional pronouns Yeah What's going uh, on with that?
2: Yeah, so I identify as gender fluid Or like gender queer uh, Which means I'm not a girl Not yet a woman um, In the words of That is an Aguilera song too That is a Britney Spears song Oh no You will not disrespect That, Um. you know what? I tried to show (laughs) off And I I screwed up Yes, yes you did Yes you did You apologize to both my symbols Is that
0: from the soundtrack to Crossroads? It is from the soundtrack to Crossroads Okay, so I get like half a point
2: Yes, which was snubbed for its Oscar. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, I I just like yeah, I think um, there's like I think there's such beautiful uh, inventions in language happening in queerness right now, and so like people are just having like new words to describe how we feel on the inside, and so you know I think they sort of like most probably describes the many people that live inside me and all their many genders, um, and so yeah, and it's like confusing for like grammar nerds who are just like that means plural pronoun, but whatever, it's language you can call yourself whatever you want, like literally literally like white people have invented, have been inventing words for things in themselves for since the dawn of time. Y'all invented white, uh, which was not a thing before. And so I can, we can call ourselves whatever we want. So <laughs> and I, I,
0: I, do you spend uh, a fair amount of your time trying to explain and or clarify with people that the pronoun you use is they, them?
2: Not really. I think for me, cause I don't experience um, what is known as body dysphoria. Um, so a lot of um, trans folks, you know, to like have this thing of like their body not necessarily re- matching what's inside. I don't necessarily experience that, and so you know, I understand that. Like most of the time, because like jeans are comfortable, like I am presenting like very much male. Um, I look like a dude. Um, I am a dude sometimes, um, and I don't, I don't necessarily get as abrasive with that. But a lot, some folks do, and I think it's folks right to be able to stand up for themselves in that way. But it seems to me be. like I know people
0: sometimes get a little. I don't want to say freaked out, but they're like, well, what are we going to call everyone? It's like, if it takes one more second of your life to remember to refer to someone by a different pronoun and it makes that other person's life better and more livable, mm-hmm. like, why would you not? Exactly. Right? It's such a small thing for the majority population to try to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Clap <clears throat> right for that. Um, I am
0: so woke. It's just unbelievable. You are.
2: Look at you. <laughs> Look how woke I am. Just bright and bushy in the morning. Yes. Just yeah, so woke. Exactly. Yes. Um, uh.
0: <laughs> I'll, let's talk about about your book of poetry. Don't mm-hmm. call us dead. Um, it's it is it's beautiful. It is really creative and it is really intense. Yeah. Um, what are you hoping people will take away from the experience of reading this book?
2: Um, whatever they choose to take away. I am not one to really like have, like, sort of a secret agenda behind my art. My job was to write it, and to write it as clear and powerfully and honest as possible. Um, And my audience can take from there what they want to take. I think, you know, if 10 people read my book and they each take away 10 different things, I've done my job. Um, So I hope some people feel seen by it. I hope some people had to have a conversation with themselves about their relationship to empathy. Um, I hope some people have a conversation with themselves about their relationship to justice and this thing we call America. Um, I hope that some people read it and don't even see anything for themselves, but rather, like, see somebody they need to give it to. I hope some people hate it um, and feel really uncomfortable and like you know seen naked and like in a very ugly way by it. Um, so yeah I hope yeah I hope it runs the gambit and what I want it to do in the world. I one of the things I found so interesting
0: is it's almost it, it's part visual art, it would seem too mm-hmm. in the way that the you know there are pages that are just repeated words yeah, and yeah. the way that the the typeface is used and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean it's it's mostly poetry. But there is a strongly visual component to mm-hmm. the book. Did you want it to have, like, when you set out to write the book, was that something you had in your mind?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of strong traditions of. Um, feminist poetry and black poetics and queer poetics that are interested in like how we not only like write words but how we also lay them down on the page. so I think I was really like thinking of a lot of my like ancestors and like heroes and stuff like that when I write on the page and start thinking about, okay, I have this like white blank thing. I know I want words on it, but do those words have to be in a straight line? No, they can be however I want them to be are,
0: are you um you know you talked about your aspirations to write infomercials and mm-hmm. also um
2: <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, Christina Aguilera. Call me Smokey things. the Bear. I will, I will give you a comeback, Smokey the Bear. Um, um, Why you... do I look out? It's not a TV show. I'm sorry. This is... <laughs> this is, But
0: this is Portland, so it's possible that Smokey the Bear is somewhere in the audience. That's true. That's true. He probably has a hipster
2: mustache now. Yes, he oh, does. Like only... He shaved all of his fur into one handlebar mustache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he runs like an artisan craft store called yes. Smoke and Bear now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Are you interested in writing? We're talking to Denez Smith, by the way, uh, poet and writer. Uh, their latest book is Don't Call Us Dead. Um, are you interested in writing other things as well? Yeah, like, like you know, I don't know, fiction, TV shows. Like, what what interests you?
2: Um, I'm currently working on a novel, um, and that's really fun to write because um, I I want to make money, um, so that's that's what I have to do. That. The poet's life is is not extravagant, um, so so I want an advance. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm writing a novel. Um, I want to write some TV shows. You know, I would love to. Like, I think I'm funny, um, so I would like to write for like an SNL or like somebody like that one day. That'd be perfect. I just have to start another career again. Ugh. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I want to write all the things, all the things, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, right on. Well, um, I have to say, This of the Things, uh-huh. Don't Call Us Dead, it's an amazing book. I hope people thank take you. a look at it. Dinez Smith, Appreciate thank you so much it, yo. for coming on live. This is LiveWire, our theme this week, Cautionary Tales. And uh, we asked the audience here at Mississippi Studios to give us a cautionary tale from their own life in the form of a haiku, because we're part of the Wordstock Book Festival this week. We're trying to be highfalutin and literary. Uh, These are some of the cautionary tales that the actual live audience here submitted. Uh, This is from Tori. Bacon on the stove, early morning nakedness. Stay away from grease. (laughs) Uh, this one from, I think, Bestin. Uh Cautionary tale in the form of a haiku. Feeling rebellious, cut the tags off my mattress. Serving ten to life. <laughs> and from Todd, a cautionary tale in the form of a haiku. The rhythm method. We thought practice made perfect. Two children later. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Hey, it's Luke. If you would like to help LiveWire out at no cost to you in under 15 seconds, here's what you can do. Head over to livewireradio.org podcast, click on the big red survey button at the top of the page, and you'll be automatically entered to win a LiveWire totes bag and a t-shirt. Now, if you see somebody walking down your street wearing that t-shirt and rocking that totes bag, it might be Rachel McClinton. How do I know? Because Rachel took the survey and she won herself some sweet, sweet swag. We need a hundred more people to take this survey so that we can figure out the best way to reach out to new sponsorship partners. That's LiveWireRadio.org backslash podcast. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Hope you are enjoying this episode of LiveWire. We recorded it as part of Wordstock, which is Portland's book festival. And we were so excited that the folks from Welcome to Night Vale made it to Wordstock this year. Uh, You may have heard of Welcome to Night Vale. It debuted in 2002, and it is a podcast about a fictional town in the Southwest. It is a town where all of the conspiracy theories are true. Talk about a cautionary tale, which, by the way, is the uh, theme of this week's episode of the show, Cautionary Tales. Um, Anyway, the show kind of hummed along for about a year, building a small audience, and then it just exploded into this runaway hit. And it's created all kinds of other opportunities for Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, its hosts, including a new book that they've written set in the Night Vale universe called It Devours. Take a listen to this. It's my chat with Joseph and Jeffrey from this year's Wordstock. Hello. Welcome to Livewire. Hi. Hi, thanks. Take me back to like a year before you guys launched Night Vale. What were your lives like?
3: We were uh, actually, about a year before it launched, we were in the final stages of a play we were writing together. About, um, about a year before Nightvale, we did a play in the East Village called What the Time Traveler Will Tell Us. Um, and it was the first thing we had written together. And uh, I had so much fun with it that that's what led to me being like, let's make a
0: podcast. I mean, so many people embark on projects, um, you know, where they get together with their friends and collaborators. And they say, let's make some awesome thing. And, and then they make it and then nobody comes to the show or maybe the podcast isn't immediately a hit and then they sort of give up. You guys didn't give up, right? I mean, you were doing the show for a year before it really caught fire. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it
3: was almost exactly a year after we started that it, it blew up. Um, but we also came out of the world of downtown New York theater. So we were used, you know, the play we wrote together before Night Vale, we ran for two weeks and I think maybe 100 people saw. So I think the, the scale at which we thought of something as a success was uh, a lot smaller than the scale of the internet usually is.
4: Yeah, our very first episode of Night Vale had 50 downloads to it uh, when we first posted it, which we were like, that's the total
0: number of people you and I know. And, <laughs> and the 10 times we checked to see if the download was still working.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, I really, I think I did hit refresh for like three straight
0: days and it didn't change. But I mean, this show is, and, and for people that, that uh, haven't heard it yet, it's, uh, it's a show that unfolds as a radio show, um, kind of the community calendar of this town. It's made up town, Nightvale in the Southwest. Um, and all kinds of interesting stuff is happening. There's a lot of production involved, like the between the acting and the way that music is used. I mean, it's a really, it's, it, it sounds time consuming. So you were doing this for a year. It must have taken up an inordinate amount of your life before it was something that you were making any kind of living off of, right?
4: I mean, a big portion of it is the writing of it. However, one of the things is, is as Joseph mentioned, coming out of like doing downtown theater in New York, doing like performance art, uh, I, was working with a, I was working at a theater company uh, called the New York Neo-Futurists. We wrote, yeah, woo. Um, we, wrote, uh, we wrote short plays and we wrote them every single week and we threw a bunch of them away every week and then wrote brand new ones. And so it was all about the constant churn of art and not being precious with that. And uh, I really appreciate that it sounds like a heavy production. There is a lot of work that Goes into it, but it also the great thing about podcasting is is that it's a sixty five dollar USB mic, and that was the and I think five dollar a month hosting, and that was the grand total of our expenses. And it recorded out of Cecil's apartment in Harlem, and uh, we used a free audio editing software that. Did we you hang ourselves. some
0: blankets or something for sound absorption? I I
3: now have like a a home. Uh, studio set up with like a professional microphone I inherited from my dad and I still don't have like blankets hung up I just record in a very
4: echoey space and I just don't care that much Cecil told me the secret was just waiting for the dogs to start barking outside yes
0: yeah can you explain for people who don't know who Cecil is
3: uh, well, so Cecil Baldwin is an actor who was a friend of ours and a member of the New York neo and when I wrote the first script for Night Vale, uh, he has an amazing voice. So I went to him and I was like, I don't know what this thing is. Uh, do you want to try reading it into a microphone? Um, he plays a character in the show that we also named Cecil um, because it didn't occur to us that that would be confusing.
0: <laughs> uh, we are talking to... The guys from welcome to Nightville, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. Um, without giving too much away the, the new book that you've written, uh, it devours, it sort of uh, involves a, a, a horrific monster coming for this town uh, of Nightvale, And yet a, a certain group of people, um, they're welcoming it. They seem completely excited about this very terrible thing going on. Uh, did you write this book after the election of the current president? <laughs>
4: Um, I actually, actually couldn't say no. I remember we turned this book in about a week and a half before the election. Really? Yeah. So we were all just like whistles and smiles and licking a postage stamp. High fives. Yeah, high
0: fives. Do you, I mean, whether it's, uh, whether it's Night Vale, the podcast, or whether it's uh, some of the books that, that you're working on, how much does the real world intrude on that universe?
3: I mean, it intrudes a lot, right? Like uh, the real world, especially, uh, especially when it's as, let's say, active as it is right now. I mean, that makes doing anything difficult, um, especially anything that requires concentration or trying to put your brain into another world. Uh, it's really hard to be like, I want to think about poetry uh, when you're also thinking about whether um, like everything's going to explode. Um, those are two
0: very difficult thoughts to hold at the same time. I'm wondering, you're saying that it's hard to not think about the events of the world when you're creating Night Vale stuff, but in a way, does it lend itself to what you're doing? Because you guys have created this world that is, you know, it, it is in its own way sort of scary. It's not sunshine and lollipops all the time. Are you, are you able to like harness the real dread in the real world and put it into the kind of imaginary dread of Night Vale?
4: Uh, yeah I think we 've done that since the beginning is that the idea of uh, we have this uh, we have this sort of uh, way we describe our writing process, which is to, to try and make the mundane absurd and the absurd mundane and We get comments a lot that night Vale, night' Vale's really it 's really terrifying and scary and there 's all, all sorts of awful things that will kill you and that 's our real world too it 's just that Nightvale gives a totally different perspective on that it adds a five headed dragon that runs for May or it has a faceless old woman that secretly lives in your home. I think the idea is, is that, that we're always trying to insert that in there, and it, it is difficult when, when real life sort of reflects that back, because while there is some satirical element to Welcome to Night Vale, our goal is not to try and do direct satire, and in these days, it feels like satire might actually not be effective anymore.
0: This is Live Wire from PRI. It's our Wordstock show. We've got the uh, creator uh, of Welcome to Night Vale, Joseph Fink here, and also Jeffrey Craner. We'll be back in just a moment. Special thanks this episode to Julia Early of Portland, Oregon, and Mariana Gardner of Chicago, Illinois. Julia and Mariana are part of the LiveWire member community. They generously support LiveWire with a donation each month. It is, no joke, what allows us to keep this whole show going. By the way, it's LiveWire's fall member drive, and we are really hoping that you are going to follow Julia and Mariana's lead by joining us as a LiveWire member during this member drive. If you sign up before the end of the year, before 2017, we're going to send you a custom pair of LiveWire socks as a thank you. You can check out the socks and you can find out more about becoming a member of LiveWire by visiting us over at LiveWireRadio.org. And thank you so much. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. We have the uh, folks from Welcome to Night Vale here, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. Um, when did you have a sense that the Welcome to Night Vale was going to be much, much bigger than you were expecting?
3: It happened almost overnight. It really was. Uh, you know, the... The first year we had maybe 150,000 downloads, which is way more than we ever thought we were going to have. Um, and then uh, that was in June of 2013. In August, uh, in July of 2013, the next month, we had 2.5 million downloads. And then August of 2013, just in that month, we had 8.5 million downloads. And we didn't know what was happening. Um, <laughs> because what was happening is Tumblr had found us. Uh, but I had, I didn't know... I genuinely had no idea what the website Tumblr was. I'd never seen it before. Uh, you know, I was working um, a really awful uh, sales job uh, where I tried to sell people things on the streets of New York City, and then I was just having this thing I wrote being downloaded um, hundreds of thousands of times a day, and I just didn't understand what was happening. So,
0: so then it's like the, all of these people are consuming this thing, but you're still... Not I mean you haven 't figured out how to monetize it at that point or how to really make a living, so you 're like sort of the most famous person, Joseph, on the street of New York trying to sell things <laughs> to people yeah it was it was a really weird disconnect because also when you become internet famous um,
3: people they they put you just right next to the people who are like making shows for hbo um, because in their head these are two people making a thing i enjoy um even though one of those people is getting paid and the other one isn't um uh the uh the podcaster and and uh youtuber gabby dunn has this really amazing idea of being too famous to eat uh which is when you are so internet famous that you can't work a regular job but you aren't making any money from your internet fame
0: Um, so when were you able to uh, to sort of bridge that gap and and make this the thing that you were able to do for your jobs? It was uh, when we started touring, uh,
4: we started doing live shows and both of us coming out of theater, it made sense to start. Just putting this up there. I say both of us. Uh, all of the people who work on Night Vale were all people in our theater circles. Uh, but we do a, we tour every year, and we we write a brand new live show, and we put that out, and we do about anywhere between like sixty to ninety cities across the world each
0: year. Um, if you had to try to sort of boil it down to to a couple of things, why do you think this show has resonated so much with people? I
3: think. There's just something really appealing about a world that is scary, but then people get on with their lives. Um, you know, Nightvale is, is constantly, people are dying and it's a very scary place, but everyone seems pretty calm about it. And I think having that as a role model can be, uh, f- certainly for me writing it, it can be a really comforting thing. Have you had any towns in the Southwest offer to change their name to Nightvale? We haven't, but basically anyone from a town in the Southwest, when they meet us, says, oh, I think you base Night Vale on my town. Um, they all, uh, all the way from Texas to California, um, they, they all think that Night Vale is their town. And um, maybe one of them is right.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The book It Devours is great. Welcome to Night Vale, and all of the ancillary Night Vale spinoffs now are all awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner from Welcome Thank you. to Night Vale. Thank you. Our musical guest this hour has put out six albums, but just calling him a musician would be inaccurate. He's also an award-winning animator who's made short films and music videos for himself and for others. His new album is Light Information. Please welcome Chad Van Galen to Livewire. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Good um, to be here. I, I, I just got done watching uh, this amazing animated, I guess you would call it a short, that you made. I mean, it's about 28 minutes, though, right? So yeah, probably didn't feel that short to animate it, right?
5: Oh, it was so long. It was
0: so long <laughs> and lonely. It's incredible, though. And I know Thanks, that it, 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 it won a really prestigious award. What did you start <laughs> doing first, animating or, or writing music?
5: Uh, well, I, would, I really just wanted to score a sci-fi film, but no one was asking me. So I, I decided to start making one out of drawings. And it, yeah, it just kind of got out of control. And, yeah, I don't recommend doing it that way. <laughs> it's a bad way to do things. Really? Yeah, it's just lonely. And we have grants in Canada that allow us to do silly stuff like that. So I took two years off and uh,
0: well, so went you're down a pretty dark hole. You're saying that that project took two years? Took two years of just, like, every day
5: animating for about 12 hours.
0: Were, were you hand-drawing this or using a computer program? Or?
5: Uh, a little bit of both. I use a program where I can, like, scan stuff in.
0: I really thought this conversation about animation was going to go in a different direction because... Oh, okay. Because, no, no uh, we're going in the honest direction, which it yeah. sounds like you're saying... Do you know any animators? Uh, you're the first one. That's why. We're, <laughs> we're just, we're just, we just
5: spend a lot of time alone... It getting weird. So, do you think you'll will, will you
0: do something like this again?
5: God, no! Please, no! <laughs> I mean, to tell you the truth, it was like a proof of concept more than anything. I, I, it was also improvised. So I don't. Yeah. Recommend what does that. that What
0: does that mean? Improvised animation.
5: Yeah. So as an animator, it's really boring if you make storyboards. So then I just decided to improvise it, and then it just it doesn't make sense to improvise animation like that. A, you need a story, like that's why people like stories, you know? Because so, if drawing... you watch it, it doesn't make it doesn't really make much sense. So.
0: Well, it's sort of a tone piece, though. I mean, I think yeah, it very okay. much
5: evokes a feeling. Okay, really? Yeah. Oh, nice.
0: I feel thank like thank God been, it's hard to know. You've been getting a lot of negative feedback about this project, maybe or something. No, it's just, but
5: that's I guess that's the why why I wouldn't do it like this again. I'd I'd love to work with other people and um, use that use it as a sort of a proof of concept that I'm just really excited about drawing.
0: What What's the name of the of the film? Tarbaz. Can people just search for that on the internet? How do people find it?
5: Yeah, I think Pitchfork put it up a couple weeks ago, so you can go there and watch it. I think. Uh. What song are we going to hear? Uh, this song is called Static Shape. And right. it's off Yeah, the new, the new
0: record. This is Chad Van Galen on Livewire. Thanks.
5: Demons go away go their tongues Machines breathe fire And horses run because I really don't To lose faith in my fellow man because I really don't need it until you tell
0: me that I really All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Joseph Fink, Jeffrey Craner, Eden Lepucky, Denez Smith, and Chad Van Galen. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Special thanks this show to Amanda Bullock and all of the great people over at Wordstock. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox. Tucker, Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio and Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. And our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. LiveWire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Jessica and Kirk Kelly of Portland, Oregon, for their support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, visit LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
5: PRI Public Radio International.